listening to the Up and Under podcast, starting in 3, 2, 1. Yo, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Up and Under podcast. I'm your host, Hani. Joining me is Zisha. Yo. All right, man. So continuing on with our playoff predictions. Uh, last episode, if you missed it, definitely go check it out already. Uh, we did our predictions for the Eastern Conference playoffs. And so now, as promised, here we are with our Western Conference playoff predictions. So just like the last episode, we're basically going to break down each series uh, and give you guys our predictions and our thoughts on what we think is going to happen in the series and ultimately who we think is going to win. And the Western Conference is very interesting. It's one of those conferences that there's a lot of competition. And as you've, I mean, game ones have already kind of happened, a couple of them, but we can already see the competitive level in the West is next level. Yeah, man, the matchups are great. I think in the Western Conference, it's definitely worked out, I think, really well this year. Yeah. Um, especially when we talk about the matchups that happen after, I think, the first matchup, especially. Um, the Western Conference is really good, and there's a reason why, you know, the Western Conference is always known as a dogfight, right? Like, you never know what's going to happen in the Western Conference. And I think this year, uh, that applies as well. Yeah, no doubt. But speaking of that first matchup, let's jump right into our first ma- Western Conference matchup. And the first matchup we have is the number one seeded Utah Jazz taking on the eight seeded Memphis Grizzlies. So the Memphis Grizzlies actually ended up winning the play-in, tor- play-in beating out the Golden State Warriors, uh, which was pretty impressive in its own right for Memphis to beat Golden State uh, to get themselves into a playoff spot. It was but a great it, game. It was a very good game, actually. But in terms of the, stati- the stats heading in for both teams, Utah comes into the series being ranked the third best offense in the league, the fourth best defense in the league, obviously have the best record in the NBA this season. Meanwhile, Memphis, Memphis had the 15th best offense, the sixth best defense this season. And in terms of Utah, they've been a great overall team this season, as we've talked about in previous episodes. You know, they have group players who've been playing super, like, very well this season, like Rudy Gobert, Mike Conley. Donovan Mitchell, Joe Ingles, Jordan Clarkson, who we'll talk about actually a little later. Um, and they've all been great on both ends of the floor. So this Utah team has just been good since the, since the jump. They also have great chemistry because it's pretty much the same team as last year with the same coach, same system, more familiarity. So they, everyone's going to know their role, which is very key in playoff basketball. You know, you want all the guys to know what their role is, where they got to be, and how they're supposed to operate to work as one well-oiled machine. And I think the Jazz are, 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 big, are a big proponent of doing that this season. The biggest question for Utah is the health of Donovan Mitchell. Now, Donovan Mitchell missed game one, which actually Memphis actually won game one with, a, with an ankle injury. Uh, he's, he, might, he should be back for game two of this series. At this stage, we aren't, we aren't confirmed yet if he's back or not, but... Donovan Mitchell's health is going to be the biggest factor for Utah because, again, Utah has everything else. They have the shooting, they have the defense, they have the supplementary scoring, but what they are lacking right now is the closer. Donovan Mitchell is their closer, and he's going to be a pivotal player for the Utah Jazz. Now, meanwhile, for the Memphis Grizzlies, they've been playing a pretty good brand of basketball for the last month or so. You know, they've been a very scrappy and fun team to watch, especially through these playing games. Like, Against the Spurs, where they jumped out to a huge lead, and then against Golden State, where they where they beat Golden State in a very competitive game, uh, and edged out Steph Curry, and you know knocked him out of the playoffs. But Memphis has been playing very well, and a lot of that has to do with their two stars and John Morant and Dylan Brooks stepping up, uh, not not being afraid of the bright lights of the playoffs, 
uh, and truly establishing themselves as playoff performers. Shout out Saga. Shout out Mississauga and Dylan Brooks, yo. They've been doing they've been doing very well. Then not to mention Memphis has been a good defensive team this season. You know, they've had the sixth best defense in the league, you know, and a lot of their, their defense really allows them to open up the floor in transition, which plays well into their strength. They have they play a very fast style of basketball. So that helps a guy like John Moran, Dylan Brooks, uh Jaron Jackson Jr., you know, get up and down the floor and really, you know, take advantage of uh, you know, defensive lapses by or offensive lapses by the other team. So obviously defense has been, is Memphis's calling card. Uh, I think what it really comes down to, I think, is Quinn Snyder versus Taylor Jenkins, who can really adjust more. Now we know the stars are gonna go out and do their thing. Like, you know, like John Morant already proven he's not afraid. So is Dylan Brooks. With Memphis, I think it's also about the role players, who else was gonna step up with them. Obviously, a guy who we know very well in JV. He's yep. he's he's been doing very well, beasting in the playoffs. Um but yeah, it really comes down to adjustments. Who would be, who's going to be able to counter what? Who's going to have that experience level? And I think in that regard, I got to give a bit of the edge to Quinn Snyder in this one. You know, he's had playoff experience. He's a very like a lot, very tenured head coach in the, in the NBA. So he definitely has a lot more experience than Taylor Jenkins. But Taylor Jenkins has already proven in a short time in Memphis that he's not afraid to adjust and tinker, which is very odd considering he comes from the Budenholzer tree. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very odd thing. But Taylor Jenkins has been doing very well. But... I think overall, this series is going to come down to experience. And I think the Jazz simply have a lot more experience than the Memphis Grizzlies. And, you know, we're going to actually see it uh, moving forward, which is why I think our prediction for this series is uh, going to be Utah in five, if Donovan Mitchell's healthy. Yeah, so to your point, Donovan Mitchell's health is the big question, obviously. Um, also, regarding your point about Taylor Jenkins and uh, in contrast, Mike Budenholzer, well, Nick Nurse came from the Dwayne Casey coaching tree, right? Okay, and we see how, how different <laughs> those two guys are. So I think it also works in, uh, in that regard. One point I want to mention about the Memphis Grizzlies, um, and it's kind of like a very, uh, very skibalous point that I'm about to bring up, but I think it works out in, in this regard. The Memphis Grizzlies can do damage to Utah Jazz simply because of the fact that there's no expectations for the Memphis Grizzlies. They have no pressure on them. Nobody thinks they're going to win any games. Um, they were able to steal game one, which was huge for them. But nobody have, you know, I didn't, we didn't have them making the playoffs even. No. So for them, you know, this is just uh, their first year um, with the score and they have no expectations for themselves. Or I guess they do, but nobody else has any expectations for them, um, especially against the Utah Jazz. So they can do what they do without having any pressure on them. And as a result, they can afford to play, you know, bad or play great. Um, the one, one of the biggest points of this series, and we've already seen it um, in game one, how much it will impact the series going forward, is the big man battle, the center battle. Uh, Jonas Valanciunas versus Rudy Gobert. Now, the main person that runs the engine of the Utah Jazz is Rudy Gobert on both ends of the ball. Um, on the offensive end, his, you know, ability to get to a rim, his ability to, you know, go off of pick and rolls um, and attract the defense is what opens up Utah's shooters to launch away. Um, and they had the best three-point shooting. Um, they were the best three-point shooting team in the NBA this season. And a lot of it was due to Rudy Gobert's presence, his, uh, him being a lob threat, um, him being a, a threat in the low post. 
Um, and then on the defensive end, obviously, we know everything what Rudy Gobert is, right? He's probably going to be the defensive player of the year this year again. Um, Well-deserved. And we he, also know what JV isn't on the defensive exactly, end. Exactly. We know what JV isn't on the defensive end. However, in game one, JV was able to outplay Rudy Gobert, which was the first time that happened this season, considering the three other times Rudy Gobert completely and thoroughly outplayed JV. So if JV can play his usual, uh, or if JV can play up to his potential and play the way he did in game one, that would be huge for the Memphis Grizzlies moving forward because of the fact that he allows them to do so much more. He gives them another rebounding threat on both ends of the ball. He gives them a low post threat on offense. He also gives them a spacer on the offensive end. And then on the defensive end, he gives them a big body at least, which they don't have with any of the other guys. Um, you know, you can throw in Jaron Jackson in there, but Jaron Jackson obviously is coming off the injury. They don't want to work him too much. So JV is, you know, very crucial for the Memphis Grizzlies moving forward. Um, and then the final point that I wanted to talk about, and this was a point that Charles Barkley made too. And this is a point that a lot of the older players make with this new era. And I tend to agree with it in the sense that the Utah Jazz, the whole year, and we said this in going back to even in December, or we made an episode earlier in the season where we talked about the Utah Jazz, actually. Yeah. And we said that all of their wins came because of the fact that they just killed teams from the three-point line. But their losses came when they weren't able to outscore teams from the three-point line. And the problem I have with today's NBA is that simple fact. The fact that teams cannot seem to adjust when their three-point shot isn't falling. Charles Barkley mentioned it. Utah Jazz was shooting like 15% from the three-point line. Bro, you have Rudy Gobert. You have slashers like Mike Conley, Boyan Bogdanovich, Joe Ingles, Jordan Clarkson. Attack the basket. Get some mid-range jumpers, bro. The mid-range is the most vital part of offense in the NBA playoffs because of the fact that the teams are giving you those mid-range jumpers. We saw that with the Miami Heat, too, how much they struggled just because they couldn't hit mid-range jumpers. Utah, if they want to win the series, they have to outshoot Memphis, which they are very capable of doing. But the problem I have, especially with that game one, was the fact that they couldn't seem to adjust when their three-point shot wasn't falling. And this is a trend with, I think, every team at this point in the NBA. When their three-point shot doesn't fall, they struggle. And that should not be the case. Yeah, no, I got to agree with that one, man. Like, I think that's really what the, a lot of the, the live and die by the three, that a lot of that comes into play. But I think in the case of Utah, like, you can say, you know, they live and die by the three. But again, based on what they've shown all year, which has always been a, criti- a criticism of the Utah Jazz, that they've been able to do it for part of the season, but not the whole season. This year, they were able to do it for the whole year. Now, translating it into the playoffs. With the experience, with the depth, obviously, I didn't even bring up a guy like Bogdanovich as well, who they have in Jingles and all the players that they actually have. I think the experience is still going to play a factor, and it's still going to be the reason why Utah should be able to take care of business in this series. Now, again, this is actually going to be a pretty fun series in the sense the way Memphis is playing and how good Utah actually is. But I think if Donovan Mitchell comes back, Utah gets the closer. It's pretty, pretty easy to see Utah winning the series. And yeah, maybe game one might have been a blip. Yeah, right? uh, we've seen it we, happen. A yeah, lot. we expect to see the same Utah Jazz moving forward. That moves us on to our two versus seven matchup. And it's definitely not a regular <laughs> two versus seven matchup. Uh, in large part, thank you very much, injuries and COVID. Um, we're talking about the two-seeded Phoenix Suns versus the seven-seeded Los Angeles Lakers. Ooh. Now, coming into the series, the Phoenix Suns own the fifth-best offense in the league. 
and the ninth best defense in the league. Whereas the LA Lakers own the 24th best offense in the league and they are ranked first uh, in defensive rating. Now for the uh, for the Suns and their offense, they have a number of great players, especially um, in Devin Booker, who's their go-to scorer, and CP3, who's their you know playmaker and also secondary scorer. Um, obviously, with Game 1 in the books, we'll have to see what happens with CP3 moving forward in his injury. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, this just seems to be a trend um, for CP3 again yeah. and again and again, unfortunately. They also have some additional shooters um, to space the floor for guys like Devin Booker and CP3. Um, for example, Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, and Jay Crowder, a good trio of wings. And then they have a good big man duo in DeAndre Ayton and Dario Saric, who can set screens, provide good release valves in the post, in the mid-range. Um, and can do a lot for them. You know, when during the season, when, for example, DeAndre Ayton was struggling with his matchups, Dario Saric would come in and provide a huge boost for them. And so Dario Saric has turned himself into a very good player for the Phoenix Suns. On the other hand, though, the Lakers do have the best defense in the league for a reason, right? Despite all the injuries that happened, they still own the best defense in the league, especially with a guy like Frank Vogel coaching them whose calling card is his defense, going back to his Indiana Pacers days. Um, in particular, guys like Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Dennis Schroeder, and Wesley Matthews will have to play big parts in the series on the defensive end um, against the Suns and their perimeter players. LeBron, I think, won't have to play too hard on the defensive end in the sense that the wings that he's matching up with are not exactly like shot creators, right? Mikhail Bridges... Uh, Cam Johnson and Jay Crowder obviously can do a little bit, but their main calling cards are as shooters, you know, uh, catch and shoot uh, players. So on that side of the ball, I think LeBron can take it a bit easier on the defensive end um, this series. However, Skip Bayless. Yeah, don't talk to Skip Bayless pretty much. Um, <laughs> but I think the main key for the LA Lakers, as usual, will be Anthony Davis and his ability to play well on the defensive end of the ball. And we saw in game one, that was clearly not the case. Now, I think what we've seen from AD um, is that he'll be able to turn it around. But AD, again, is the key for the LA Lakers on the defensive side of the ball. His ability to switch out onto the perimeter and bottle up, for example, pick and rolls um, or catch and shoot opportunities. And then his ability to uh, you know defend the basket and defend the paint um, against the Phoenix Suns and their creators and attackers. They'll also have to figure out uh, how to sun how to run their center rotation, which has been a problem for them throughout the season. And then especially even more so since they acquired Andre Drummond. Um, and Frank Vogel, his rotations, if there's one problem I have with Frank Vogel this year, it's been his rotations. And the epitome of that is their center rotation. Um, in the sense that, you know, Andre Drummond, frankly, should not even be playing half the time, let alone, you know, starting. Um, if you want to play him off the bench, that's okay, maybe. But Andre Drummond should not be starting. And then you have to figure out how to use Marc Gasol and Montrezl Harrell, who, you know, Gasol is a good defender, but he is slow at his age. And then Montrezl is just a, a subpar defender, in all honesty. Shifting things over to the offensive side of the ball for the LA Lakers. Their offense is not good, to say the least, especially without LeBron James on the court. It gets pretty messed up um, because of the fact that they just don't have a great set of creators or spacers. You know, they have a couple guys who can do both, 
but they don't have, you know, a vast amount of those guys, unfortunately for them. Anthony Davis in particular is going to have to dominate his matchup against whoever guards him, let alone, uh, let it be Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, uh, DeAndre Ayton, who did a amazing job on him in game one. Um, so he's going to have to dominate that matchup, whoever comes at him. Um, again, please, Frank Vogel, game two moving forward, do not play Andre Drummond or at least play him off the bench. Um, I think in this case, Marcus Hall can be very useful. You know, Frank Vogel didn't want to play Marcus Gasol um, in the Warriors game, which was very understandable. But in this series, when you're when Marcus Gasol is facing a guy like DeAndre Ayton, where he can at least he has a more of a chance to be able to keep up with him. Um, I think in this case, Marcus Gasol needs to be able to play because of the fact that you need a center who can do a lot of things for you on the offensive side of the ball for at least three quarters until AD moves to the center spot in the fourth quarter. And Marcus we know with his passing and shooting, LA players have all said that they love playing with him pretty much a lot more than Andre Drummond, including Kyle Kuzma. We've seen those stats with Anthony Davis uh, beside Andre Drummond and without Andre Drummond. We've seen those stats. Um, Kyle Kuzma, uh, Wesley Matthews, KCP, Alex Caruso, and Dennis Schroeder have to all play well, as in the other guys, because, you know, we're, we know what we're going to get from LeBron and hopefully from AD. Um, but yeah, as usual, LeBron James will either make or break the offense. And then for the Phoenix Suns on the defensive end, they're a very good defensive team. Not only on, you know, they're, they're not only a good offensive team, but they're a very good defensive team. They have a number of good perimeter players, um, and Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder, um, who can at least help slow down LeBron. You know, obviously you can't stop him, but more bodies to throw out LeBron. Uh, DeAndre Ayton, like I said, could do well in this matchup as he did in game one. He can do well moving forward. He's a very quick big man. So in that sense, he can keep up with uh, Anthony Davis and he has the length to be able to bother Anthony Davis. Uh, CP3 and Booker won't have to expend a crazy amount of energy on deep uh, because of the fact that, again, Dennis Schroeder might get a couple of layups, but he's not really a shooter. And then KCP and Alex Caruso are not exactly threats to, you know, go crazy with the ball in their hands. So, you know, on that in that sense, the Phoenix Suns backcourt can at least, you know, don't have to expend a tremendous amount of energy on the defensive end. Um, but yeah, the series comes down to, for the Phoenix Suns and their defense, pretty much just trying to stop LeBron James and Anthony Davis. That is what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to against any team that faces the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, and for all the reasons I mentioned, because of the fact that I think we, we all know this is going to be a very evenly matched series. Um, but I've learned and we've learned not to bet against LeBron. You can't, right. You can't, you can't bet against LeBron, especially in the first round, right. It's very tough to bet against LeBron James and then factoring in CP3's injury moving forward, whatever happens with that. Um, for us, our prediction will be the Los Angeles Lakers winning this series against the Phoenix Suns seven games yeah i i mean i know people are going to be you know shocked by that you know like oh my phoenix has outplayed them they clearly were the better team in game one why do you still pick the lakers to win well let me let me explain that because this laker team is really giving me the vibes of the 2018 calf that lebron was on it's it, this is not a great team it's not a great team i watched the pretty much most the first half of game one and that really told me all I needed to know about this Laker team. Um, you talked about their defense. I mean, game one, I mean, against the, the Warriors, they were, they were great. That, the Laker well, defense, in the second half. Yeah, in the second half, they were great. But again, against the Suns, 
that Laker defense is pretty bad in terms of, you know, not helping on shooters or not not being quick to close out or not rotating, ju- not rotating. Like it just little minor, you know, you know, details that they kept missing, which just led to easy buckets for for Phoenix Suns players. And again, Phoenix literally just kept capitalizing on mistakes the Lakers kept making. And I really like this Phoenix Suns team. You know what's funny? I didn't even realize that this was the Devin Booker's first playoff series. Yeah. And he he, he did balled out. he balled out in his first playoff game. You know, he he's a very good player. I mean, we all were like, yo, let's get Devin Booker in a playoff series. Well, here we are. Not to mention, I mean, you got CP3 to the setup, set everybody up. You know, Cam, I like, I love, I like Cam, Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges. But the pairing of Jay Crowder has actually worked out very well. I mean, Jay Crowder pretty much works on every team he's on, so he's unless he was on unless the he's on the Cavs, <laughs> unless he's on the Cavs. And then again, Aiton, DeAndre Aiton's been pretty solid this season. Dario Saric, he was a good player back in Philadelphia too. So there's no surprise to me how well Saric has been doing for them. But again, so I know the Suns are good. I know they're a good team. But I need to. But back to the Lakers. The offense is terrible. They suck on offense. Without LeBron on the court, I swear to God, it looked as though like they were all just lost, bro. They were looking at each other. And you know the person I blame the most is Anthony Davis. Yep. You are six foot eleven. Why are you taking mid range jumpers? Well, contested, heavily contested. Contested mid range jumpers. Get inside the paint. Like I know, I, I think Anthony Davis has this fear that every time he goes in the that get it's contact, he's gonna get injured. Yeah, uh, yeah, but that's important. You're six foot eleven. You are strong. You can dominate. You and more. And at the bare minimum, you can draw a foul because you're a pretty, you're a decent free throw shooter. So why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he take over? Why doesn't he be that go that number one option who the Lakers are basically grooming him to be eventually when LeBron retires? So why isn't he doing this? This is what what Anthony Davis was brought in for. He was brought in to be. That guy to support LeBron. So when LeBron's on the bench, AD takes over. That's the whole point. That was his whole point. So AD not taking over is a big reason. Then when you talk about the Lakers' other players, they have no creation. Dennis Schroeder, I don't know what he's doing, but God damn it, man. You, could, you should have took that 80 million. Yeah. You absolutely should have taken that 80 million because you're not going to get that now. After the performance that you've been putting on, like you're just making poor decisions. You know what reminds me of Eric Bledsoe? Ooh. It reminds me of Eric Bledsoe, just oh, making man. poor decisions, breaking layups. You know, I, I don't know what his problem is. And then Andre Drummond also, like, again, like, he's just clogging up the paint. <laughs> big penguin. He's a big penguin. Like, he's, like, honestly speaking, I agree. Why doesn't Frank Vogel just play Marcus Gasol? Marcus Gasol makes more sense in this series than Andre Drummond. Then, not to mention, it also helps out Anthony Davis as well. So, and then players, like, who you want to step up, like a KCP breaking every shot he took. Kyle Kuzma only took two shots in game one. And he missed both of them. Like, you can't have it. You can't play 19 minutes and take two shots. Like, it, just that offense on that team has no creation with LeBron off the floor. And that is the biggest reason why it reminds me of the 2018 Cavs. They're so reliant on LeBron. LeBron has to carry these guys to the finish line. And again, the Suns have a lot of weapons on that team. So, you know, the Lakers are going to, uh, if they, they continue this and be, be sloppy, you know, they might be down like 3-1 or like 3-0 or something. You can very much see that happening. But you, based on, back to your point, you just can't bet against LeBron. Because LeBron took that 2018 Cavs team to the NBA Finals. And if he can take that team, which was even worse than this Laker team, in my opinion, I think he can, he can, he can get this Laker team out of, he can drag this Laker team out of the first round. Now, granted, that's given his health, which again, LeBron does not look 100% right now, but... 
we know he he will ramp it up, and I think in in game two you'll we'll see that for sure. You'll he's gonna be a much different player in game two. But uh, yeah, I have to agree with you, man. Like it just the the Laker offense isn't playing well, and if their defense isn't 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 good enough, like you know, it's gonna be a be a rough time for for, for the LA Lakers. I mean, the Lakers are definitely better than the Cavs because of the fact that the Cavs are terrible defensively, whereas the Lakers are very, very good defensively. So when they at least, on. Huh? Like when they turn it on, like when yeah. they keep it up. Well, I mean, at least that's going for them, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, for everyone who's like panicking about the series, though, we know from history, LeBron notoriously just chills in game one. He, he always takes game one as a feel out game. Um, and then obviously from game two onwards, he just unfortunately, you know, destroys the other team. He lets you, he lets you have one. Yeah. He Gracious lets, King. Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> he lets one. the other team have one pretty much usually every series. I mean, you know, what was it? Portland and Houston last year. Pretty much. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Didn't he let um, Indiana win game one too? When the Cavs yeah, man, he does it every single year. Yeah, he does it a lot. Um, but yeah, moving on to our third, our three versus six matchup, we have the Denver Nuggets as the three seed versus the Portland Trailblazers as the six seed. Now coming into this series, Denver owns the seventh best offensive rating in the league and the 12th best defensive rating in the league, whereas the Blazers own the second best offensive rating in the league and own, well, definitely not the best, but second uh, worst uh, defensive rating in the league at 29th. Now, for the Nuggets, the first thing you have to address for them is the fact that they're missing three offensive creators in Jamal Murray, Will Barton, and P.J. Dozier, uh, who are very key for them. Uh, you know, obviously, Jamal Murray is their second best player, and he was having a great season this, uh, you know, this campaign. And unfortunately, he, he tore his ACL, which is not good at all. And then Will Barton uh, notoriously has been, you know, inconsistent with his health. Um, and then PJ, PJ Dozier is another guy that has come along very well for them the last couple of years. And unfortunately, you're missing him. And so that just means that they're going to have to rely on Nikola Jokic even more, um, which is the usual thing at this point. And Nikola Jokic, for his, his part, is the best player in the series. So that works out very well for the Denver Nuggets. They also have Michael Porter Jr., who pretty much can score from everywhere on the court. And he's having a fantastic, fantastic season, particularly when uh, the Denver Nuggets asked him to carry more of a load offensively since Jamal Murray went down. Michael Porter Jr. has responded fantastically to that, and he very well deserves his spot on the most improved list. Aaron Gordon, uh, Facundo Campazzo, and Monte Morris are also three very good offensive players who will determine the Denver Nuggets series for them. Um, my final point about the Denver Nuggets offense is the fact that despite the injuries that they have and despite the sometimes over-reliance on Nikola Jokic, Denver will be fine offensively simply because of the fact that the Blazers suck on defense. And that's what it comes down to. You know, we've talked about the Blazers' defense on numerous occasions throughout the show, um, especially this year. The Blazers suck on defense. They're the 29th ring defense. They can't stop anybody. They can't protect the rim. They can't protect the perimeter. They can't do anything right on the defensive end. Um, and, you know, that stems from the fact that their starting lineup itself is so part. Besides Robert Covington and Yusuf Nurkic, who even they haven't had the best seasons of their careers, everyone else is so part defensively. Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, and Norman Powell are all walking mismatches for the, on, on the defensive end. So, you know, the Blazers suck. Uh, they're, they're, you know, their starting lineup sucks on the defensive end. 
And then when you get to the bench too, you have Ennis Cantor and uh, Lame- uh, I almost said Lamelo Ball. <laughs> Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony. My bad. My bad. He's the true mellow. Get it right. He is the true mellow. Yes, he is the true mellow. Uh, Ennis Cantor and Carmelo Anthony are pretty much your only options in the series off the bench, and they also suck to say the least on, on the defense. Yeah. End. Now Melo has been trying a bit more on the defensive end. I will say that he he I think has been playing pretty solid for his standards. But yeah, Ennis Cantor is, might be the, the worst uh, defensive big man in the league. Um, for the Blazers, on the offensive side of the ball, they are great offensively, especially, again, with their backcourt in C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, who can go nuclear at any time. And then with Yusuf Nurkic facilitating for them, um, and then Norman Powell as like a release valve for them. So with the Nuggets missing a bunch of guards, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum will be able to do even more damage without a guy like PG Dozer, uh, Will Barton, you know, defending those guys. Um, like I mentioned before, the Blazers will have to rely on their starters on both ends of the ball. Um, you know, Carmelo Anthony can be on and off at times. Ennis Cantor, you know, can only play limited minutes because of the fact that he's great on the offensive side of the ball, but defensively, he's terrible. So you're going to have to have a cap on Ennis Kander's limits, which means, again, the starters will have to do everything for the Portland Trailblazers for the most part. And the key for them is to pretty much, as usual, just involve Nikola Jokic in the pick and roll as much as possible, which is the strategy for every team going, at, going up against the Denver Nuggets. Uh, you know, so it'll be interesting to see how Mike Malone counters that now in Game 2. He did do very well in terms of hedging and doubling. Um, especially in the second half. So, you know, the Blazers will have to do what they can to try to abuse the Nikola Jokic matchup. Um, and then especially when, for example, the guards get doubled, having a guy like Norman Powell there instead of, you know, for example, Gary Trent, who couldn't really attack the basket. Now having a guy like Norman Powell there who can attack off the closeouts really helps them in this series. Um, the Denver Nuggets have surprisingly played pretty solid defensively this year despite the fact that they have like numerous limits. As I said, Jamal Murray was, is not a great defensive guard. Um, nobody across their team is really that great defensively, as, uh, except for Aaron Gordon, who I think will serve as the X factor in the series on both sides of the ball. Um, on the offensive side of the ball, Aaron Gordon will have to be able to create a bit off the bounce and then obviously serve as a spot-up shooter. But then defensively is where most of his work will come. Now, we saw what Mike Malone did in the second half of Game 2, where he put Aaron Gordon on Damian Lillard, and that really pretty much killed the Blazers after that. And that is the type of defense Aaron Gordon will have to play the series for the Denver Nuggets to win. We know what he can do. Um, We know his agility, his quickness, his size. He has all of those. Um, It's just about his, you know, sometimes he has temporary lapses and the IQ, right? So Aaron Gordon can hone in on those um, aspects of his defensive game, then that, I think, would be a very big boost for the Denver Nuggets. Um, Finally, I think our prediction for the series. Now, again, this is a very evenly matched series. Um, You know, Denver is missing a few key players that I think would have finished the series faster for them. But, you know, the matchup of Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum versus Nikola Jokic and Michael Porter Jr., I think, is a very exciting matchup. It's a very interesting matchup. It's a very evenly matched, uh, uh, you know, matchup. So I think for us, we're going to say the Denver Nuggets will win the series in seven. Yeah, 
I think, uh, like, honestly speaking, it's it sucks for Denver because they had such a such a good year. Jokic had an MVP MVP caliber season this year, and the injuries came at the worst possible time, especially in Jamal Murray's case, man, because he was having a very good year as well. Like, if him and Jokic came into the playoffs healthy, like you said, this would probably would have been end. This series would have been done in less games, probably. Um, but again, we are where we are at this point. You know, Denver has the injuries, but again, they they have other guys stepping up. Like Michael Porter Jr. has been doing a great job. You know, in the absence of Jamal Murray, just being that scorer, being uh, and then using utilizing Aaron Gordon as that versatile player. You know, which has always been the problem with Aaron Gordon, which is that nobody really knew how to use him properly. Once you put him with the coach, you can figure out how to use him. Now you can see the benefits, even the adjustment of putting in putting Aaron Gordon on Damian Lillard. The smart idea again. He's Aaron Gordon's big, athletic, quick. So he he can really you know make life tough for Damian Lillard, uh, and again like you you're talking about uh, a Blazers defense that isn't very good. So even if you're you're lacking a bit on the scoring department, <laughs> a lot of players who are kind of able to take advantage of that. I mean you're going up against the 29th ranked defense in the league out of 30 teams, yeah. so they're not great. So you're, the Denver Nuggets are going to score. The problem with Denver I think lies where you know can they contain uh, Portland's offense. Portland has a very lethal offense. Damian Lillard, I mean, again, they might have slowed him down one game, but I already know for game three, he's going to probably adjust or, you know, Terry Stotts might do some adjustments and make and get Damian Lillard a little bit more freed up or CJ's going to go off. Or again, you have a guy like Carmelo Anthony who could go off as well, then Norman Powell. So they definitely, you know, the key for Denver is containing Portland's offense and making sure that you limit the damage a guy like Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum have. But on the flip side, flipping it over for Portland, you want to make sure you outscore Denver. You know they, you know they're going to score on you. You know that I, there's nothing you can do about that. They're going to score on you at will. But you got to outscore them. You got to be able to hit your shots. You got to be able to uh, recognize doubles, and you got to rec- be able to pass out when when needed, and make the right make the right plays offensively because that's your that's your only strength in this series. Um, again, I definitely feel like. This wouldn't be close if, you know, obviously if, you know, if Denver was healthy. But I have to agree. I think with the combination of Portland's lethal offense and Denver's, you know, experience and savvy, this could be a pretty competitive series. And I I agree it should go seven games. Yeah, man. To your point about how Denver's pretty much going to have to outscore the Blazers in this series, that was pretty much the difference between game one and game two, right? In game one, Nikola Jokic was passing all of his double teams and nobody was hitting any shots. And as a result, Nikola Jokic had like one assist in the first half or something like that. But in the second game, Nikola Jokic was passing out those double teams and people were, uh, his players were hitting those shots. And that was pretty much the difference between game one and game two. Yeah, no, for sure. So yeah, that, that was the Denver-Portland series. Moving on to the final series of the Western Conference first round playoff matchups. We have the fourth-seeded Los Angeles Clippers taking on the fifth-seeded Dallas Mavericks. Now, the Clippers come into this series with the third-best offense in the league and the seventh-best defense in the league. Meanwhile, the Mavs come in with the ninth-best offense and the 19th-best defense in the league. Now, in terms of this series, it's pretty cut and dry in terms of when you're looking at both teams. The Clippers clearly have the advantage in this series. They have the star talent in Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Serge Ibaka. They have good role players in Patrick Beverly, Marcus Morris, Ivica Zubac, you know, etc., etc., uh, the only reason the Clippers could lose this series is if they flop again in the playoffs. 
You know, the Clippers have more talent, more experience, better on both ends of the floor than Dallas. They should win this series. Like, there should not be any issues with uh, the Clippers losing this series. But again, the Dallas Mavericks have a guy in Luka Doncic who has already proven he's a big-time playoff performer. Uh, Luka isn't afraid of the moment. Uh, and again, he can, and the, the Mavs have an offense that can get hot whenever. Like, and and we, as we've seen in Game 1, the Mavs' offense got hot. You know, Clippers weren't able to adjust, and Mavs won, won, took Game 1. Not to mention the Mavs have some decent role players. I mean, obviously, Tim Hardaway Jr. is always there. Dorian Finney-Smith, Maxi Kleba, Josh Richardson. So they have some players. But I think the biggest factor for the Dallas Mavericks is Rick Carlisle. He has a lot of playoff experience, championship experience, and he can adjust when needed. But again, there isn't a ton to say about this series. Overall, the Clippers are a better team in this matchup and should be able to edge out the Mavericks. So, But I, I do see the Mavs stealing maybe another game. So my prediction for the series is uh, Clippers in six. Yeah, I definitely agree with that prediction. One guy you didn't uh, mention either was Chris Asperzingis. Yeah, I think he might, he's the X factor for the Dallas Mavericks in terms of, you know, you, we know what we're going to get from Luka Doncic. Um, you know, but Chris Asperzingis is the X factor for this team and has always been the X factor for this team since they acquired him. Fortunately, he's never been able to live up to the expectations they've placed on him pretty much because of injuries. And that is one of the main reasons that New York traded him away. Uh, side note, I would definitely agree with the fact that New York won that trade. Um, so, yeah, we, we took it L there. And, hey, listen, most other people also took it L because everyone pretty much clowned the Knicks for that trade. But nobody expected Chris Tapps to be basically a shell of what he was like i get the big men recover from uh, the acl a little differently than uh guards do but again like you you can't like they, there's this moment where he just forgets he's seven for three <laughs> like he's just soft well you know? that's the problem that's always existed with chris asperzingis he plays like a guard the unfortunate thing is bro you're seven foot three you're not a guard right bro get in the low post and do some hook shots or something man don't yeah. Even when, like, that's, that's been my problem with him, too. Even when he was able to get into low post uh, position, he would always do his, you know, his regular turnaround fadeaway over the right shoulder. And it's like, buddy, if you get, if you're able to, you know, do a hook shot, you're, like, three feet closer to the rim, right? Yeah. So, Kristaps Porzingis, I think, would be the, um, you know, the X factor for the Dallas Mavericks. One thing about the Clippers is it'll be interesting to see how they adjust to playoff basketball because of the fact that one story that's been well-documented for the Clippers this season is their over-reliance on the three-point shot. And that was my similar point to the Utah Jazz who are also, you know, face a similar predicament. You know, the Clippers this year under Tyron and Lou have really embraced the three-point shooting. Kawhi Leonard, PG, all of them have all been shooting more threes this season. And as a result, their offense has flourished because of the fact that they were high... They were hitting a good percentage of the threes and they were taking among the most threes in the league. And so as a result, they had a great offensive ranking. However, in their big games, when the offense, you know, and the game slowed down, especially against teams like the Lakers, like the Bucks, et cetera, et cetera, we saw how their over-reliance on their jumper could get them in trouble. And again, that's my point. You know, it seems to be the case with every team in the league, you know, if you keep relying on a three-point shot, chances are in the playoffs, it'll screw you over because of the fact that 
the playoffs are a different game. There's more physicality. The games are slower. You're not getting as many opportunities. You're not getting any good looks. You have to be able to use, utilize things like the mid-range and attack the rim. And, you know, you have at least one of the guys who can do that very well in Kawhi Leonard. But other players have to be able to, you know, do that as well. Um, and then final point about the Clippers is, you know, I don't want it to sound like I'm a hater, but at the same time, Paul George does have a history in the playoffs. Marcus Morris has kind of been a hit or miss guy for his whole career. Um, you know, and then Serge Ibaka has been, was great for the Toronto Raptors in his last season or his, in his last two seasons. However, he's also prone to, you know, mishaps in the playoffs, to say the least. So, you know, other guys have to be able to step up this year to surround Kawhi Leonard. And Tyron Lue will have to be able to adjust. Now, Tyron Lue has done a great job for the Clippers this year. However, me and Anya have both been very critical of Tyron Lue in the past. And I still don't understand his, where this reputation of him being an amazing coach came from. Because yeah. I've never personally seen it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've never personally seen it. I'm not saying he's a bad coach, but I'm not saying he's some great coach that everyone makes. He's not like a be. Phil Jackson or something exactly. like that. Like that everyone's trying to paint him out to be. Yeah. So Tyron Lue, I think, will have to be able to adjust. And going up against a very good coach as well in Rick Carlisle, it'll be an interesting chess match, I think, between the two teams. But to your point, I think it is, you know, Cl the Clippers' talent, I think, is inevitable. They have more options. They have you know, more, uh, you know, better players on both sides of the ball. And they have the best player in the series in Kawhi Leonard, I think, who is better than Luka Doncic, at least at this stage of their careers. And then they have a better secondary star in Paul George compared to Kristaps Porzingis. Yeah. So I think just because of the fact uh, of those facts, I will agree with you in the sense that I think Dallas is good enough to steal a couple games, but I think the Clippers will win this in the end. Well, they should. I mean, they have to. If the Clippers flame out again... Now, remember, Kawhi Leonard is a free agent this year. Well, I mean, if he opts out, which he most likely will. But so, again, the Clippers need to get it done, you know. And with the Lakers struggling, this might be their best chance of making it into the finals. Yep. So, or at least the conference finals, for crying out loud. They haven't even been to one as a franchise, which is so embarrassing. So, so, yeah. Bottom so, tier franchise. Yeah, man. We're going with the Clippers in six. Hopefully, way off P and the crew don't disappoint. Um. <laughs> But yeah, man, those were our predictions for the Western Conference first-round matchups. Just to recap, uh, for Utah and Memphis, we have Utah winning in five. We have the Lakers winning in seven against the Suns. We have the Nuggets winning in seven against the, the Blazers. And we have the Clippers winning in six against the Mavs. Let us know what you guys think. Do you agree or disagree with our, with our picks uh, on either on social media or the comments section on YouTube? Uh, and with that, moving on to the up and under segment to end off this episode. First off, are you up or under on the Charlotte Hornets? Uh, picking up the team option on head coach James Borrego for next season. I mean, I'm up on it. Like, I don't, I don't think he's an amazing coach. But considering what, you know, the amount of success that he had this season, I think it's only justified and deserved for them to, you know, give that option to James Borrego and, you know, see what he can do. Another guy from the Greg Popovich tree, right? And, um, you know, so shout out James Borrego for having the season that he did. Unfortunately, the last game was terrible. But, you know, he at least deserves that extra year. Based well, on what he did this season. I mean, the last game was kind of the most important game. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, NBA, for put, making it such that. I mean, they would have made the playoffs if it was a regular if it was a regular format. But you know what? That is what it is. But I think for James Borrego, I think he did a pretty solid job, obviously. I think what it comes down to now is what Charlotte does in the offseason. If they go for it to make a playoff push next year and they don't make it, then I think he's James Borrego is going to be gone after next season. 
Um, but I think overall, just building a culture in Charlotte, developing players, he's done a pretty solid job for that organization. Yeah. Next up, are you up or on, under on Andrew Wiggins recently announcing his commitment to Team Canada for the 2021 qualifiers and Olympics? Yeah, I'm up on this, bro. We've been saying this for like a what is this, two years now at this point, bro. I mean, we've been saying it for a long. We've time. been saying it for a long time, but there's for Team Canada, we have so many good Canadian players in the NBA. And if they all come together, bro, with Nick Nurse coaching, it's going to be a hard team to beat, man. And Andrew Wiggins, with the season he had this year under uh, uh, Steve Kerr, imagine what he can do with Nick Nurse, you know. And again, I know we lost out on a guy like Jamal Murray, but when you see what guys like Dylan Brooks are doing, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously what Ken Birch was able to do this season, uh, Kelly Olynyk, there's a lot of talent on this, Canadian, uh, on this Canadian squad. And you add a guy like Andrew Wiggins, who... Could you know break out or could even have a, a you know could have a great chance to learn under Nick Nurse? This is a great opportunity for him. We've been always telling Andrew Wiggins, uh, especially while he was in Minnesota, go and play for Team Canada, get a new development system into you. Maybe you'll be able to learn something, bring, improve your game on the NBA court. So it's great that he's finally doing it. Yeah, man. Like not to mention we have all the OGs probably gonna play too. Tristan Thompson, Kojo, all of those guys too. You know Kelly Olynyk, like you mentioned. We have a bunch of OGs who usually always suit up. RJ Barrett's another one. Oh, yeah, RJ Barrett, yeah. Um, you know, Chris Boucher might be able to make of the team course, as well. Man. So we have a lot of players. Andrew Wiggins, I think, um, you know, to be a number one option for this team, I think Andrew Wiggins is a great player to have. Um, I think this year he's going to finally come because of the fact that, <laughs> you know, there's no more G. Triano pretty much. And again, like, we had our criticisms of him not joining the team. I don't exactly blame him for him not wanting to play under JG. Okay, but listen, now Nick Nurse is here. Andrew Wiggins, he's committed to Team Canada. It's it's great, great for Team Canada. Yep. Hopefully, we make it through the qualifiers. Um, moving on, are you up or under on the NBA uh, saying that it treated LeBron's health violation, you know, COVID nineteen health violation, similarly to others after he wasn't suspended? So basically, the NBA is justifying the reason to not suspend LeBron. By saying that, hey, there's similar instances with other players and, you know, we handle it the same way. So that's why we're giving LeBron uh, no suspension for this. So you're up or under on that? I mean, I'm under, bro, because gap, bro. I, yo, they should have at least named one example, right? Yeah. Here's the thing. I don't blame them for not suspending LeBron or for, for not sending him out. Because of the fact that it's LeBron James. He it's runs the NBA, yeah. right? Like, from a business, no matter how much you hate LeBron... If you're, you, you use your business sense. Any business right? would do it. Exactly. Any businessman would do that. LeBron James runs the, well, league. the NBA He's your would, main source of revenue. The NBA would do it for any of their stars. Like exactly. Imagine Steph Curry was in a similar situation. Do you think the, the NBA would let Steph Curry exactly. do it? Kevin Durant, same thing, man. Like, yeah, it's, like it, it's not, not just a LeBron thing. Exactly. It's not just a LeBron thing. It's a, you know, protect your assets that make you huge yeah. amounts of money. The NBA won't come out and say that, hey, we did it because it's LeBron freaking James, but... Exactly. We all know. We all know it. We yeah, all know it's exactly. LeBron James. Like yeah. you, you cannot tell me that the NBA would have suspended LeBron from a playoff game and lost out on playoff revenue from LeBron. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely not. Next up, are you up or under on the Utah Jazz's Jordan Clarkson winning the Six Men of the Year award? Yeah, I'm hella up, bro. Prediction one prediction down. One of one. We got one right. So hopefully our other ones are all right too. But so we haven't checked out check out our awards predictions episode as well. A couple of episodes ago. But yeah, man, we, we said it in the awards episode. Uh, we think Jordan Clarkson deserved it. Obviously, really establishing a role in Utah, being a big factor in why Utah was able to get the number one seed in the NBA um, this season. And, you know, just being the leader in bench scoring this season, obviously that's kind of how this award works. Is if you score the most points off the bench, you kind of win this award. But 
he was great for Utah this season, man. Really established himself in a role. It's still amazing to me. Like, I saw this earlier where the Lakers had Jordan Clarkson, D'Angelo Russell, Julius Randle, and Brandon Ingram and couldn't develop any of them. <laughs> and now, like, what? Throwing like, another guy like Ivisa Zubar. Yeah. Three of these guys are freaking uh, all-stars, and one guy won six-man of the year. Like, yeah, that's crazy. That's why patience is key with the young players, yeah. right? Um, but, yeah, Jordan Clarkson, like I said, Honestly, if it were up to me, I would probably give it to Joe Ingles, if I'm being honest, because of the fact that he's kind of, you know, that Swiss Army knife for the team and kind of does everything for them. And if you look at the bench unit, even kind of plays a huge part in their success. But, you know, like Hani said, the award usually goes to the bench gunner, right? Yeah. The player that gets the most points off the bench, Jamal Crawford, J.R. Smith, Lou Williams. Um, So, you know, no surprise that Jordan Clarkson wins this year's six man of the year award yeah for sure moving on are you up or under on the indiana pacers still evaluating head coach nate bjorkman now obviously the we talked about it like uh, a few episodes ago where nate bjorkman was kind of on the hot seat just based on the fact that there were reports on you know people in the organization not liking the way he coached even guys like tj warren not wanting to to asking for a trade because nate bjorkman was going to be coaching so the Pacers are obviously still evaluating the situation, but are you up or under on, on the situation with Nate Bjorkman? I mean, I'm up on the sense that they're still evaluating him because you want to wait until like everything settles down to, you know, have a clear head and make your decision properly. Not to mention the fact that Kevin Pritchard himself is also on the hot seat uh, for this yeah. Nate Bjorkman hiring, as he already was on the hot seat for time before that as well. Um, but yeah, like Nate Bjorkman... I think they're considering everything that's come out. I don't understand how you can bring this guy back, right? It's there's no, I can't wrap my head around him coming back to that team and everyone in the locker room just being like, hey, welcome back to this team. Yeah, like I, I can't see it happen. So I don't think he's going to be back. And if everything that's come out about his tenure in Indiana is true, then I don't think he should be back in all honesty well i mean it really depends on how much of it's actually true and how much of it's just blown out of proportion obviously nick nurse being you know obviously like being a long time you know friend of nate bjorkman and obviously was a former assistant of you like nate bjorkman the former assistant of nick nurse he obviously did like completely like squashed the 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 report saying that look this is completely false but again like nick nurse doesn't really know at the end of the day and like he's not inside the pacers organization or the pacers locker room and neither do none of us. Like none of us really know what's going on. So yeah, I mean, it's good that the Pacers are still evaluating, making a complete decision, really looking at all the facts here. But yeah, I mean, if all of this comes to be true, then yeah, I would definitely say it's very difficult to see Nate Bjork going back. But hey, Nate, there's a seat on on the bench next to Nick Nurse. Yeah, still man, for uh, Chris Finch is gone, so uh, extra spot, seat opens up. He spots back. Um, and then finally, are you up or under on the? NBA and Adam Silver wanting to revisit their midseason tournament idea. Now, this was primarily based off of um, if you guys watch football or soccer, um, you know, it's European soccer, football have these midseason tournaments in, you know, in their respective leagues. For example, you know, English League, FA Cup, stuff like that. So Adam Silver pretty much wanted to take a page out of their book and introduce a midseason tournament idea where, you know, for example, the winning team would each get a million dollars, respectively. So are you up or under on the NBA wanting to visit, revisit this whole idea? I'm under on this, man. Like, I agree with Jamal Murray. Why do you want to over com- overcomplicate the season even more? Like, the whole playing thing, I was like, already was like, wasn't really that great in terms of 
you know, overall, like what we really got out of it. Like we got maybe like what a game and a half really that that was really good. Yeah. You know, because and again, like we're not every year we're gonna get a LeBron James and Steph Curry in the play, and that's just not gonna happen. So like the fact that the NBA wants to add it, I mean, it's really just a revenue making making idea. It it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't do anything massive. Again, like I would say, if the NBA shortens the regular season a little bit more, make make games mean more. Then that's an idea I'd be more open to, but the midseason tournament to me makes no sense. It it makes no sense for me because of the fact that you're already overburdening players, right? Yeah. There's always already been discussions about shortening the season. Now you want to add on games again. The play-in is already there, so that creates even more you know issues. Um, but then you know him basing it off of Europe. My issue with that is. First of all, it's already being established in tradition for their leagues, right? Having it come to the NBA and introducing it is going to be a very hard concept. Second of all, with the European soccer leagues, the reason why the midseason tournament works out so well is because of the fact that they decide their champions based on every single game of the season. And then whoever has the most points or wins at the end of the season wins the, the, the championship, right? And that's how they decide it. And then they also have the Champions League on top of it. So that way, they, they're able to have those midseason tournaments, knockout style, because that's different from the regular championship style and the way they determine their champions. The NBA already has a tournament to, de- to determine their top champion, which is the NBA playoffs, yeah. right? And that's the biggest goal. Teams, if you introduce a midseason tournament, will not care at all. They'll send out their G League squad for that, end, uh, for that midseason tournament. A million dollars per player is not going to make a difference. And imagine it's, someone gets hurt. Exactly. And imagine somebody and gets hurt. Even so teams chances. will not, I don't think, care at all about that midseason tournament. And like I said, it works out well for European soccer because of the fact that they have numerous other things going on already that makes it work. In the NBA, yeah. those conditions are not met for them. So a midseason tournament idea, I don't think the NBA should do it. Now, again, We'll have to see how this idea actually comes to pass, but yeah, for me, I'm I'm also under. I mean, we also said that about the play in two, and that ended up happening. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Um, but with that, that concludes this week's episode. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Definitely subscribe to the show on all the various platforms. You can find us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, YouTube, basically wherever you can find a podcast, you can find us with the Up and Under Podcast. Also, follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at upletter n under podcast, facebook.com slash up and under podcast for all the latest updates whenever we post a new episode or a reaction to news or even like our reaction to the NBA playoff series as they occur. So definitely check that out. Also check out our website, upandunderpodcast.com. It's our central hub for the show. It's a place where we post blog posts about every single episode. So if you don't have time to listen or watch the full episode, you can read about it on our website. So definitely check that out if you haven't done so already. And yeah, man, playoffs are started. Playoffs are here, man. Things are getting exciting, and uh, yeah, as soon as going to be what uh, we're going to do, all NBA predictions going coming up soon, and then off season, a few off season topics as well. Yep. So yeah, stay tuned for more content coming up. But yeah, with that, that concludes this week's episode. We'll see you guys on the next one. Take it easy. Easy.